we are uh, beginning a uh, four months looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is a, a, a long, longish sermon that uh, Jesus gave. It's, uh, it takes up all of chapters uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, we're going to be covering all kinds of topics over the next four months as we look at this sermon in detail. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about anger and lust and marriage and caring for the poor and prayer and anxiety, all kinds of practical issues um, about our spiritual life. And, um, and I, I'm going to be making today just a number of introductory marks into, remarks into this f- maybe Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And... Um, one of the things that I want to say before we read this passage is that this sermon, is, it, this, these next few chapters are the main reason that I wanted us to look at the Gospel of Matthew together. Because uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew ends uh, with Jesus giving this commission to the church. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what we did today, and, uh, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded So Jesus tells the church, your mission is to make disciples. And the way you do that is to teach all that I've commanded. But then you look back in Matthew and say, well, what did Jesus command? And actually, the Gospel of Matthew uh, is kind of structured around these five discourses that Jesus gives. And this is the first of them. And actually, this is the only one where it begins, where it says, and Jesus taught them. So I think in many ways, when Matthew, Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, this is the content of what it looks like to be a disciple, is the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we make disciples and become disciples ourselves, this is just a central teaching. Um, and so we're going to be looking at it in detail over the, uh, over the next several months. So um, it's just a great resource. And so uh, we're going to begin by just reading, I think you're... you're Bulletin says the first six verses. We're actually just going to look at the first five. We'll look at verse six next week. And uh, this is the beginning of the Sermon on, on the Mount. This is God's word to you because he is, he is your teacher. S- uh, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these simple but penetrating words uh, that open the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you would send your spirit to open our hearts to what you are saying, the mystery of what you're saying in these words. Give us a sense of wonder at the grace of our God. And would these words transform us? Um, Words that are so familiar to so many of us, would they be new? Would they be fresh to us this morning? And would we sense that the Lord Jesus is indeed our teacher who's uh, guiding us, discipling us, that we might be a people, a church that makes disciples as well. So be our teacher now, and I pray um, that you would uh, somehow translate the sermon that I give and uh, that the people sitting here would hear a different sermon, a sermon that applies to their own lives, their own hearts, and that your spirit would be the translator and apply those, uh, your word to them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so... Uh, 
as we're going to be looking at this sermon in detail, you know, I just read a few verses. We're just taking little chunks uh, like that over these next four months. Um, one of the things I'm going to be continuing coming back to as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is what is the big picture? What's the main idea that Jesus is getting across in uh, the Sermon on the Mount? So that as we're looking at these little few verses, what's, what's the main idea? And, uh, you know, one of the things, the main ideas you can kind of pick up in this verse 1 uh, you'll notice that Matthew says, seeing the crowds, uh, he went up on the mountain. And while he sat down, uh, his disciples came to me, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he begins his sermon. So he goes up on a mountain to teach them. And, and you know, what Matthew's trying to evoke is there was another teacher in the Old Testament who came and went up on a mountain and he gave a teaching to God's people, and that was Moses. And so in some sense, uh, Jesus is like this new Moses, right? Actually, in the Old Testament, Moses said there's going to be coming another prophet who's like me, and you should listen to him. And now Jesus is going up on a mountain. And, so, and when Moses went up on the mountain, what did he do? He got the Ten Commandments. He got those, uh, those uh, pieces of stone with the Ten Commandments written, and he brought down the law of God to his people. And so now Jesus is a new Moses, who's bringing the law to his people. So on the one hand, you say, what's this sermon about? What's the big idea? Jesus is the new Moses. He's bringing the law of God uh, to his people. And actually, as you, you know, this is kind of the beginning of the sermon. If you look at the end of the sermon in chapter 7, at the very end, how he concludes the Sermon on the Mount is he gives these three pictures. And he says, uh, well, first of all, you know, there's, there's two gates. There's uh, the, the wide gate that will is easy to go through that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And he says also, you know, there's these two trees. One tree that bears good fruit, one tree that bears bad fruit. And he says, and then there's these two houses. Uh, there's a house that's built on the sand that when the storms come, it crumbles and it can't stand. And then there's, there's this other house that's built on the rock that can stand when the, the storm comes. And so when you take these two things together, you say, well, you know, okay, He's coming to give a law, the law of God, and he says there's these two kinds of ways to live, right? You can be the good gate, bad gate, good tree, bad tree, good house, bad house. And so you think, what is this sermon about? Well, it's about the big decision. Are you going to be a good person or a bad person, right? You think, uh, okay, Jesus is putting before us the question, am I going to be a religious person? Am I going to be a pious person? Am I going to love God? Am I going to do what God says? Or am I going to be an immoral person? And uh, do whatever I, I want. Am I going to be an irreligious person? And yet, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to find out is that this question has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. We think that these are the two ways to live. But when we look in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, there's no prostitutes or drug dealers or gang members. or you know, There's no immoral, you know, immoral people in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, the people that Jesus is warning us against are not irreligious people but religious people. The law is against religious people is you don't want to become a certain kind of religious person. And I think that all of us know that there is a kind of religiousness that is miserably unattractive. Right? There's a kind of person that, you know, maybe, I mean, it's all of us in some degrees. Maybe you know that, maybe you experience it, maybe it's you. Um, that on the outside is very pious, very conscientious, um, knows a lot about the Bible. And yet you know that on the inside there's a coldness, right? There's a, a, a judgmental kind of spirit. There's a condescending kind of spirit on the inside. And uh, that is really, it's, it's unattractive. It's not this beautiful kind of life. 
And what the main sermon, uh, the main purpose of this sermon is to distinguish these two kinds of religious people. This, it's not about deciding between being religious and irreligious. It's between these two different kinds of religious people who in many ways look the same on the outside. They both go to church. They both say their prayers. They both read the Bible. They both give their money away. Um, you know, they... You know, they both uh, don't sleep around, whatever it is. There's two kinds of religious people, and Jesus is going to say one kind of religious person is totally lost, and one kind of religious person has something deeply beautiful happening inside of them. What is the difference? And, um, and uh, this is what he's going to say verse 20, in verse 20 of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, who you know, everyone thinks is they, they're the ones that God loves, and he says, you need to have a completely different kind of religion than they do. What is the difference? And um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was having coffee at Adagio's, a coffee shop downtown. That's where I spend a lot of my time, and I was talking with a local pastor, and we got into this big debate about the Sermon on the Mount of, you know, is the Sermon on the Mount really something that Jesus expects his disciples to do? Because we're going to read through it and you're going to see, you know, that Jesus says things like, if you, um, if you even uh, look after a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You know, and people say, this is impossible. No one is ever going to keep this kind of law. It's, it's so rigorous that no one can keep it. And this, that's what the pastor said. He's like, the Sermon on the Mount is not there for you to keep. It's not meant for you to keep. It's too hard. It's impossible. It'll just pound you into the ground because you can't do it. And um, I, I strongly disagreed with him. I really think that this, he is giving a picture of the kind of life Jesus expects for his disciples. Except, of course, we're not going to do it perfectly. But what it's like is it's like a family. And by the way, I'm giving kind of an extended introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and we'll get into these verses. But uh, what it's like, what the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like a family. And if you have a family, you have children, you have certain requirements for your children. I require my children that they love each other, that they love their mom, that they love people. That, that's something that I demand of them. And are they going to do it perfectly? No. Are they going to be kicked out of my house if they don't do it? No. But all the same, that is a requirement of our house. And what's interesting about a house, though, why that's a good analogy of children is because how are my children going to become loving people? Is it going to be because I simply tell them you need to be loving people? Is that going to make them loving people? It's not. It's when I love them. When I pour love into them, it actually trans it forms their hearts. It forms who they are and what they love, and they become loving people. Love bestows loveliness. And what Jesus is going to say, um, the same thing is true with the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus says there's these two kinds of religion. There's this one kind of religion that's just an external show, but on the inside there's this kind of coldness and death and, and uh, condescending uh, pride. And yet there's this other kind of religion that on the inside is full of joy and humility and gentleness and, and kindness. And he says, what's the difference going to be? How do, you, how do you become one and not the other? You know, we're all here. We're all Christians. We want to follow God. We want to obey God. How do I become one and not the other? And his answer is in these opening verses. Of, this, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, because what he says is that we must be loved by him profoundly first. Jesus must love us. He must bless us before we can become a blessing. He must bless us before we can become a blessing. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus pronouncing blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are the meek. He pronounces blessings on people. And so what these, these, these are called beatitudes, these this little poetic statements of the Sermon on the Mount begins with, this is the doorway into the kind of life that Jesus has to us. The, the, the beatitudes are the doorway into the Sermon on the Mount, into this true kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the big message, um, and what, you know, what's interesting about this passage that we're looking at this morning um, is that the only people who have potential to be this true kind of righteousness, that's not just righteousness on the outside, but righteousness actually from the heart. The only people that have the potential to be that are people who are profoundly broken. You must be profoundly broken if you are going to become the kind of disciple that Jesus expects us to be. And um, those are the only people that Jesus puts his blessing on, are people who are profoundly broken. And so what I want to look at today is that uh, Jesus blesses people who are broken in three ways. The spiritually broken, the emotionally broken, and the socially broken. These, this kind of profound brokenness, uh, is, these are all qualities that our world would say are, are repellent, that is unattractive to our world, and it turns out that these qualities of being of brokenness are actually qualities that attract Jesus and attract his blessing. So we're going to look at these uh, three kinds of brokenness uh, as an intro, the doorway into the Sermon on the Mount. So first, Jesus blesses the spiritually broken. And you can see that uh, in this, those opening words where Jesus says, blessed, uh, what is that, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to be poor in spirit? Um, you know, I was reading an author recently who had made the observation that a lot of Christians take that phrase, poor in spirit, and they kind of transform it into something virtuous. Like it's a noble quality, right? They, uh, if you're poor in spirit, you're a kind of person, you're modest, you're humble, you don't talk too much about yourself, you know, maybe you're authentic, you're, you've really looked in the mirror and, and seen the reality of who you are, and so that there's something virtuous about being poor in spirit, and, but what he says is that completely misses the point. If you think that uh, being poor in spirit is some kind of quality that Jesus is trying to commend here, then you're missing completely what he's saying. Because uh, what he's trying to say is that you have nothing to offer Jesus. The poor in spirit means that I'm, I come empty-handed. I don't have something virtuous that I'm bringing to Jesus. I, I have nothing to offer him. And uh, he gives the analogy of this, this, uh, this man who was a missionary went to a, a very poor part of the world, and uh, he met with a group of people, and he, and he began doing a Bible study with them, and so he'd open the Bible, and they'd read this passage, and he'd ask all, all these people sitting there, so what do you think of the passage? And they'd all sit there just silently, and not say anything. And he's like, all right, well, talk, maybe we just need some warming up, and he kept coming back, and the same thing, no one would give any thoughts of what they thought about the passage, and then he, all of a sudden, he realized that the reason is because no one had ever cared what the, the poor thought. It never occurred to them that they might think something that was valuable, that they had something valuable to offer. And he's saying this is the essence of what Jesus is saying is the people who are blessed are the people who have nothing to offer Jesus. That They, they, didn't, they don't have a spiritual insight. Um, they don't, uh, uh, you know, things that they can contribute to Jesus' mission. Actually, um, just before the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 4, uh, Jesus starts this ministry, and it says there that um, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted uh, with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Those are the poor. 
the, uh, those possessed by demons with all kinds of diseases and sores all over their bodies. They're, they're paralytics. They can't do anything, you know? And you imagine, if you're starting some movement, some worldwide, I mean, Jesus is starting a worldwide movement, which we're a part of 2,000 years later. And you'd imagine, when someone's starting a movement, who are they going to go to? You, you'd think they'd go to people who are gifted, you know, they're leaders, they have skills, they're, they're good public speaking skills, good relational skills, they maybe have finances where they can finance the movement, they have things to offer, and Jesus does the opposite. He doesn't go to the people who have things to offer him. He goes to the, the broken who have nothing to offer him, spiritually broken. And, um, and you know, I, I really, uh, this week, the Lord was ministering to me uh, using uh, just these words. Um, I, I, I was sitting there. I, I often, this often happens to me where I'm trying to prepare for a sermon and maybe hours go by where I, I don't write anything. I just feel completely dead, and I'm looking at the Bible, and maybe you have this experience. You look at the Bible, and it's just a bunch of words, blah, 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 and, uh, and I'll pick, okay, maybe, I, maybe the Bible's not connected. I'll find another book, and it's all kind of, uh, what am I doing? And so I'm sitting there doing this, and I, maybe the Lord's trying to, you know, give me a spiritual poverty that I have nothing to offer, and so all I could do is I went on a walk, and I'm just walking with the Lord, and uh, what he was showing me was that even as a pastor, even as a minister, I, it's essential to my ministry that I really have nothing to offer him. That I come to him uh, w- with empty hands. I don't come to him with all kinds of skills. Um, I really come to him empty, empty-handed, and he wants that to be the case, that he will bless me even if I have nothing to offer him. Jesus will bless me even if I have nothing to offer him, even if I come empty-handed. And this is what's amazing about uh, the Sermon on the Mount is that really loving God and really loving people from your heart begins by receiving a blessing from God that you don't deserve, that you didn't earn. And when you find out that I can be a spiritual failure and Jesus will still bless me, I can be a spiritual failure and Jesus will still bless me. That's how he starts his law, his Sermon on the Mount. And when you hear that, that um, God will bless me when I have nothing to offer him, when I'm a spiritual failure, what happens to you? What happened to you right now? What happens to you right now when I say, uh, even if you're a spiritual failure, Jesus will place his blessing. He will give you the kingdom. He will give the richest thing that he has in the world. He will give you the kingdom. What does that do to you? It begins to cause you to love God right on the spot. At the beginning, I hear, we hear this phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the first thing that happens is us is not an external, I'm going to obey God, but something transforms in my heart. And this is the brilliance of the Sermon on the Mount is that it begins by Jesus doing himself the work in us that needs to be done in order to do the sermon. He's changing our hearts. He's forming us with this phrase, uh, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so um, I think that the fact that Jesus blesses the spiritually broken, this is a surprising beginning to Jesus' commandments. You know, he says, I'm a, you need to obey everything that I command you. What, what do you. There's no commandment in here. It's just a blessing. But it moves on, because what you would think is when you come to this first part of the sermon and you say, wow, even if I'm a spiritual failure, Jesus will bless me? You'd think that the next step would be that that would lead to joy. I'd become happy, right? That would... That would stir joy, and in some ways it does do that. You know, we begin to love God, but Jesus says that's actually not the next step. Uh, The next step is that Jesus says not only does he bless the spiritually broken, but also he blesses the emotionally 
broken. And this is what the next step is. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is an odd statement because, you know, the word blessed, not a word that we use a lot, but you could, it could also be translated happy. So he's saying, happy are those who mourn. Happy are, you know, happy are those who cry and are brokenhearted. Strange paradox. What's, what's he talking about there? Um, and uh, Jesus says that his disciples, the people that will resent, represent him in the world, are people that have a mournful spirit, that will mourn uh, about their lives, about the world. Why is that? Um, well, I, you know, someone, we, we talk about these passages in our home group, actually, the week before I preach on them, and someone in our home group uh, mentioned that what Jesus is saying in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount what, is that it's, it's necessary for people who are Jesus' disciples to feel a sense of dissonance about themselves and about the world. They need to be unsettled that something um, about the world and about their lives is out of tune. It's not, it doesn't sound right. There's, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And, um, and that if we're going to have a righteousness, it's not just a show, it's not just I'm pretending to be a pious person, but a righteousness that's actually way down in my bones, in my, in my heart, and in my gut, and who I am, that deep kind of love for God and love for people, a true gentleness and kindness, then there's going to be an honesty about the world and about my own life. And uh, the, uh, Jesus promises that mourning will lead to comfort, and uh, Dan Allender is a Christian psychologist, he's someone that I, I, I talk about fairly uh, fairly frequently, and he's written a book called The Healing Path, which is really an excellent book I recommend, Uh, and in that book, he talks about a a family, a gal named Maria and her husband John, who uh, lost a a young daughter uh, to leukemia, and in this story, he's talking about how it it was, this was so devastating to Maria, it it completely paralyzed her life, Uh, she, she was completely taken over with despair. And uh, so much so, you know, at the beginning of the school year, and she saw the kids running to the bus that she felt like she should um, go get her daughter's clothes and run to school with the clothes and put them in the gym or in the cafeteria and cry out to God in the middle of everyone and, you know, bring my daughter back to life. So there's this devastating despair. And this is, I'm going to read kind of a a longer paragraph here. This is what uh, Allender says about their mourning. As Maria's depression deepened, she wisely chose to see a physician who prescribed antidepressant medication. The drugs helped, but the deepest change occurred when Maria and John began to tell stories about their daughter. Jenny was precocious and wise beyond her years. Many stories about her brought both tears and laughter. But for the first three months after her death, John and Maria did not tell those stories. They seemed to be forgotten. But as they began to remember and tell the stories, they wept together rather than apart. As they wept, they also began slowly to laugh. And as they laughed, they felt an odd relief and surprise. They felt hope. They did not falsely hope their loss could be filled or removed. They knew it would be a wound for the rest of their lives. Instead, they began to hope that in some way God would bring them moments of peace and joy that would never be erased in this life in spite of their sorrow. What he says is that the transformation didn't come from being joyful. It came from a, that this is not the way the world's supposed to be. 
Death is something, death is the enemy of God, that's what the Bible says. And to say this is not, a child is not supposed to die of leukemia. And to feel the dissonance, there's something out of tune, there's something wrong with my life and something wrong with the world. And to mourn that. And Jesus says this is the beginning of true discipleship is to mourn, and I, uh, um, is to not accept the, wor- the way the world is. And uh, actually, I put a quote for you on page three of your bulletin, so I'm going to read, give you a lot of quote, uh, you know, long passages in this sermon, but uh, this, is what, um, this is what Allender says in another place in The Healing Path. The fatalist handles suffering by minimizing it, uh, shrugging his shoulders, refocusing on the good things in life, and waxing philosophical about real harm. Fatalism anesthetizes desire, seeking to rise above the desire-disappointment cycle. Fatalists may appear serene, but their stance results in distance from others, lack of empathy, and a trivialization on their part in shaping the future. Fatalism is morally lazy, unimaginative, and leads to a spectator approach to life. So if we're just fatal and we just try to say, I, I can just take, you know, the, the world's a mess, my life's a mess, uh, thing, terrible things happen, and, you know, I'm just going gonna to coast along nice and easy. Nothing's going to affect me. I'm not going to have deep hopes or deep despair. I'm not going to have either of those. What he says is you'll become un- unimaginative. You can't be the kind of agent that God has called us to be in the world. And let me just tell you, by the way, this is one of the big differences between Christianity and and something like Buddhism. Buddhism tells you, you should not have desires. You should not have hopes. If you have desires and if you have hopes about the world and the way the world should be, it's only going to let you down. It's only going to lead you to despair. And But what Jesus says is that if we're willing to mourn, that will create a hope in us that things can be transformed in the world. And, um, and so Jesus' disciples are people who mourn that their own lives, their own hearts are sinful and broken and that the world is broken. The, the, and we long for God's kingdom to come. And actually, there's a, uh, Jesus is in this uh, beatitude is quoting uh, from Isaiah 61. And I, I'm going to actually read that to you. I know I'm reading you a lot here. But um, Isaiah 61 is, is a a passage that gives a promise of the coming Messiah from the Old Testament, that there's a Messiah who's going to come. And this is what it describes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is talking about Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. He says when you mourn and when you have been comforted by God and that mourning has led you to hope for something better from God and for your own life and for the world, that will will create, it will make you into a tree like an oak of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And then this is, this is how it ends. This is these beautiful lines from Isaiah. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And what Isaiah is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that people who are willing to mourn the world, the brokenness of our own lives in the world, 
become agents of restoration. They step into broken neighborhoods, into, uh, into uh, broken families, uh, into broken communities, into broken churches. They walk in as agents, not because they think they can fix everything. They know they can't fix everything, but because they've mourned the world and they've, hope has stirred in them, they become salt and light. And that's what Jesus is going to say later uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the, there is this um, strange beginning to what discipleship looks like is first... Uh, that we're spiritually broken, that we have nothing. To, first of all, the first requirement is that you have nothing to offer God. <laughs> that you have to be a spiritual failure that's blessed by Jesus is the first requirement. The second thing is you is someone who mourns the brokenness of the world. But the third uh, kind of doorway into the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, Jesus blesses those who are socially broken. Spiritually broken, emotionally broken, but also socially broken. And you see this in verse 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does that mean? Who are the meek? And um, actually, again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting uh, Psalm 37, which is a psalm that kind of talks about how the world is, you know, filled with all kinds of people who are competitive, greedy, and yet all these people who are kind of trying to uh, acquire wealth for themselves, comfort for themselves, they seem, you know, to live this easy life with no suffering. And the psalmist is kind of complaining, why do these people become rich and they become comfortable, even though they, all they do is they care about themselves? And, um, and in that psalm it says that the meek shall inherit the earth. That the rich, the greedy, the competitive will die and they'll lose everything that they had, but the meek will inherit the earth. And Jesus is quoting that. And, um, and what that psalm tells us is that the meek are those who are powerless in the eyes of the world. They can't keep up with the competitive nature of humanity. They're, they're, not, they're non-competitive. They're, they're weak. And um, so they, have, they seem to have nothing to offer. And uh, Jesus um, ha- says that these powerless people... Um, these non-competitive people that the world thinks are useless, he has a special place for them. And uh, what's fascinating, um, you know, especially considering the ancient world, uh, the ancient Greeks, especially the Stoics, believed that the way to the good life was that you basically, you look at the universe, look at nature, and there's all this harmony um, to nature. And, and the goal of our life is basically to look at the way nature functions and to try to align ourselves with that harmony. We're basically trying to imitate the harmony of nature. If we do that, then we'll, uh, you know, we'll become like nature, we'll become one with the universe, and we'll live on forever. And, um, um, and of course, you know, that has many parallels in a place like Bellingham. You know, in Bellingham, you know, we're very eco friendly kind of people, and we would think something very similar, right? Look at these beautiful ecosystems that are around us. First of all, we shouldn't hurt those ecosystems, but also we should learn from those ecosystems of how to get along with each other and how society could work together if we could just imitate those ecosystems. Now, um, but if you really look at those ecosystems, you really look at the way of nature, what are you going to find there? You're not going to find... Uh, you know, the alligator um, saying to the yak, uh, you know, why don't you cross the stream? Sure, no worries. Go right ahead. Uh, I'm here for you, brother. You know, we're ecosystem. We're all getting along, right? No, the alligator is going to grab the yak by the leg and pull him under the water and drown him. And that's how the ecosystem is held together. (laughs) Nature is deeply violent, deeply competitive, 
um, all about my own survival. And actually, our, the basic worldview of our culture is, is evolution, which says, where does all the beauty, the trees, you know, the butterflies, where does everything come from? It comes from animals being competitive, the survival of the fittest, the strong eat the weak. And so if you look at nature and you say, I'm going to imitate nature, um, you're not going to get love each other. You're not going to uh, build up the weak, bind up the brokenhearted, right? The pack of wolves are going to leave the wolf with the broken leg behind. The, ele- you know, the baby elephant that gets lost gets left behind. And uh, there's no sense of caring, caring for one another. And what Jesus says um, is, I'm calling my disciples not to imitate nature, not to the power and to the competitive, but I'm embracing those who are not powerful. And instead, you know, the, what the competitive do, you know, we come into the world and say, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going I'm, I'm to set goals for myself. I'm going I'm to achieve things, and, uh, which isn't, isn't a bad thing to do. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into how that works as a Christian. But, um, but what Jesus is saying is that we think that we can conquer the world and it will be ours. But what does he say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth will be a gift. My disciples don't competitively use their power to grab the things that they want. The things that they want are going to be given to them as a gift. And this is what, this is what stirs in our hearts. They're going to be sons. And, you know, I, I, I got to say one thing about this because this is one of my favorite, uh, favorite sayings of Jesus is that he says that they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You, that might catch you off by surprise. Why the earth? I thought Jesus' disciples, you know, when you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. I thought you'd inherit heaven, right? The first one says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, the, for, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's this thing about I'll get the earth? And what this shows us is actually uh, many Christians say that what our salvation is, is that um, salvation means that when you die, your soul goes to be with God forever and ever in heaven. Now, certainly the Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, that does happen. But that's not what your salvation is. Salvation is that when God raised Jesus' body from the dead, his body was restored. And what God did for Jesus, he's going to do for us and raise our bodies from the dead. And not just do for us, he's going to do for the whole creation. In some way, the way that Jesus' body was transformed into an indestructible life, he's going to do that with the whole earth, the whole universe. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and heaven is, and earth are going to become one place, and we will dwell with God in our bodies. It will be a physical reality. So if you picture heaven as like, wow, I'm bouncing from cloud to cloud, and that doesn't sound particularly fun to do for endless ages, that's not the picture of salvation that the Bible gives, is that we will be in God's good creation in his presence, and we will finally be who God made us to be. And it will be a gift. It will not be something you earn. What does he say? You will inherit it. God is the language of sons. He's saying, I'm taking these powerless people who have nothing to offer me and who are mourning about the earth, and I'm going to make them my sons, my children, and I'm going to give them the earth. I'm going to give them eternal life. It is this is the beginning to discipleship. Look, what, did he, what has he told us to do so far? <laughs> he hasn't told us to do anything. He's just blessed us. And when he blesses us first, it stirs in us hope, faith, love. And now we're going to begin to be ready to become the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And so the doorway to Jesus' kind of righteousness, Jesus' kind of good life, is through grace. And so the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is a big pronouncement of you have nothing to offer God and he will give you everything. And when we believe that, we will be transformed. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these mysterious, penetrating words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That when we have nothing to offer you, you bless us and give us your kingdom. Would we have the faith to really believe this? Would your love change us? And uh, would you make us your disciples through these words in this church? And we thank you for your blessing. It is worth everything to us. In Jesus' name.